0: Hey, everybody, it's Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome to another episode of the Oregon Bridge.
1: How do we take these ideas and move them forward? And coming from the profession I come from, where, you know, house is on fire. We put the gear on, get in the truck, go to the fire, put the water on the fire, put the fire out. Parts of the legislature are not that different from that. We just tend to make it way more complicated than it needs to be. We are a thousand firefighters short in this state. And I would say if we avoid those kind of smoke conditions that we had and fires like we had, it will be a miracle.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, Today, we are very excited. Uh, Our guest on today's episode is Representative Dacia Graber. She is a freshman legislator representing the city of Tigard. She is my personal state representative. Uh, And we covered a whole range of topics on this episode that Dacia is kind of perfectly suited to talk about. She is a professional firefighter in her day job um, and has a bunch of experience um, as a firefighter, was active in her union, is actually a leader Uh, was a leader in the firefighters union. I'm not sure if she still holds that role. Um, She mentioned being the diversity and uh, equity and inclusion um, lead person in the union while she was there. Um, and she's a strong advocate for gun violence prevention that preceded her service in the legislature um, and she's kind of seen as a rock star freshman. Um, I think she's actually been awarded a couple of freshman legislator awards for coming in and um, many of her bills are moving swiftly through the session as we approach the end of session here in the next month. Um, and yeah so it was great to have her on we covered a lot of topics what were the highlights in in your mind Alex. Yeah,
2: I thought it was a really fun episode. I mean, we went all over the place. Uh, we went to recreations all the way to forest fires. Uh, so it was it was definitely a, a fun episode. And uh, it's she actually, to me, is sort of the epitome of why I think in certain circumstances, Oregon Republicans are going to have a harder time pulling off union members into the GOP than across the country, because to me... Again, she's a progressive, but she still just sort of embodies what I think of like that working class union member who can really resonate with blue collar voters. Uh, that's completely the vibe that I got from her. And even though I think she's probably out of step with a lot of those people on social issues, again, they're going to continuously vote on some of those more fiscal issues, comes to minimum wage, maybe it comes to PERS and things like that. And at least with that base, uh, she totally has his issues on lockdown. So yeah, it doesn't it wouldn't surprise me at all uh, to see her run for higher office or for Congress or something like that. At, at some point I was uh, she's very interesting to talk to. And uh, yeah, I thought that she had an excellent job on the pod. I would also say that at one point uh, actually at the end of the episode, which I know uh, probably most people fall off before the end. They can't, you know, they can't stand you talking for, for 40 minutes, Ben. Oh no, no. You know, all, all of them just fall off. But, uh, but yeah, she was critical of, of governor Brown in, a number of circumstances and then actually she gave some very interesting answers on forest on forest fires and fire management uh and as i was just telling you i always think that this sort of generic progressive take on wildfires is like ah climate change and sure i'm sure you could argue that obviously some someone has to do with climate change but she was like we need to talk about forest management and disaster prevention and all these other things and i was like wow this is impressive we should be having more of these conversations so yeah i thought i thought overall she did really well
0: yeah, she's got she's got a lens that she talks about of resilience um, and not just resilience in terms of emergency preparedness, although definitely in emergency preparedness, but also in state government as a whole. And that was one of her big criticisms of the governor and previous Democratic administrations, too, that I thought was astute was it was about, you know, the it was a wonky state government issue, Dogami, which is like the Department of Um, geology. Um, There were some positions that were supposed to be studying earthquakes and earthquake preparedness that were removed from a budget recommendation. Um, So she's clearly a a policy wonk, um, as well as politically astute. As you mentioned, she's like the nightmare situation for uh, a general election for Republicans, um, as they're trying to peel off, um, like they've done in the Midwest, try to peel off um, organized labor in Oregon. Uh, Folks like Dacia make that really challenging for them to do. One. Interesting part of the conversation. Obviously the reparation conversation was fascinating and I think that's an emerging topic in on the oh, left. And just to, so I did actually look up the city. It's Evanston,
2: Illinois, which I remember the city was in Illinois, but I forgot exactly where it was, but it's Evanston if folks wanna be able to Google that and see what their city council was able to move forward in terms of uh, reparations.
0: Um, So the other interesting conversation we had was about social media usage. So Dacia is considered sort of the the most, one of the most active state legislators on social media. Um, And interestingly, not just like in the generic sense that traditionally people have said, you know, here's my bill that I'm working on or come to my town hall. She she actually uh, tags her opponents and she'll tag like um, legislators who she's disagreeing with. She'll actually engage with folks like Representative Bill Post on social media. And so we had an interesting conversation about her philosophy on social media and uh, um, the dangers and benefits of um, engaging in that way um, on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, it was a great episode. I thought it was one of our most like open and um, authentic episodes where really wasn't just like an honest conversation um, without much um, pretense. So I hope folks enjoy it. Um, any final words, Alex?
2: Uh, yeah. Thank you all again so much
0: for listening.
2: Uh, if you could please give us five stars and then if you could also leave a review, uh, that helps uh, basically uh, top us off in terms of in terms of the reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or every listening to your podcast. And big news that the Oregon Bridge actually broke the top 200 podcasts in the politics category, uh, which I thought was impressive. There was even that many people in this world that cared about Oregon politics. So Uh, Thank you so much to all of you who are listeners who uh, support us and, you know, keep basically tuning in. I'm surprised you didn't drop off after the first one. We're here on number
0: 15. So I'm I'm surprised that there's even 200 podcasts about politics, Um, but I'm honored to be among the top 200. I will also say I did humble brag in this episode about uh, one of our recent episodes getting several hundred downloads, but our downloads are going up for every episode. So thank you all for those of you who are sharing with friends. Um, The ratings and the reviews are huge, but the best way that you could help our podcast is if you send a text to a friend or send an email to a friend saying, hey, check out this episode with Rep Graber, I think you'll enjoy it, Um, or whatever episode has spoken to you just to kind of help us spread the word, Um, super, super helpful. We should also mention, um, this happened several weeks ago. But uh, the Oregon Bridge was actually organically shouted out in the Ben Bulletin, which is one of the major newspapers in Oregon. Their editorial board encouraged their readers to listen to our podcast, which was a big help in spreading the word. So thank you to the Bulletin. Um, and all the all the listeners who who are listening for the first time because of that, uh, we are, we're glad to have you and we welcome you to the Oregon Bridge team. All right, everybody, that's everything we got for today. Thank you again for listening and enjoy the rest of the episode. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge podcast. Uh, today, we are excited to have State Representative Dacia Graber joining us. How are you, Representative?
1: I am fabulous, and this is one of my favorite days of the year.
0: <laughs> that is awesome. I was going to say, you get some special bonus points. I believe you are, you are our only guest to actually come on on your birthday. Uh, so please tell us, what is life as a legislator on your birthday working from home in the middle of a legislative session?
1: Well, this is the one day I've been able to work from home because Fridays we're not in the building, but it's been a pretty usual day. Copious amounts of coffee. Um, yeah, we I just came right from here, right to here from Caucus. So uh, but I am actually done after this. I'm 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 closing the computer, logging off, and actually trying to enjoy the day. There's not many days like that.
0: Yeah, I believe it. Well, thank you again for joining us on your birthday, Alex.
1: Absolutely.
2: Yeah, no, we're really excited to have you and uh And and representative, I would say a lot of the times on this podcast, I am always right. And Ben is always wrong because that's just just how the world works, you know. And I was really excited for this episode in particular because Ben had suggested you as a guest. And I Googled you and looked over your social media presence, looked over some of your photos, saw that you were were a firewoman. And I said, Ben, uh, the representative is the perfect embodiment of, I would say, is like the Rust Belt, northern new york state working class democrat progressive and ben was like i don't get it i don't know what you're talking about and then i read this story and i looked on your bio and you said i am from northern new york both of my parents were <laughs> union members someone told me women can't be firefighters and i was like hell yes i can and i was like i, I knew it ben i knew that was sort well of so background, this is so.
0: This is where we'll have to get into it, and so Titus actually deleted one of my questions that I think would have uh, been interesting, and I'm going to ask it anyway, which is, so Titus suggested that your profile is like a good fit for the Rust Belt, but knowing you and kind of watching your campaign, I think of you as like sort of left-wing progressive who has like aligned, so how do you, what kind of a Democrat are you, you know, what, what are your politics, how do you think of yourself in the political space?
1: I really enjoy occupying the space as a Democrat that nobody really knows quite <laughs> what to do with me. They're like, Where does she go? She's diehard union, but she's got these crazy progressive ideas. Oh my gosh, over here, she's saying something fiscally conservative. We don't know what to do. I like to think of myself, if I had to identify my lane, I would probably take the pragmatic progressive. Okay. So I'm extremely socially progressive. I... All my my politics are informed by my hands-on ground level experience, but I also I, I want to get things done. I see that we have to have this balance of aspirational and also how do we how do we take these ideas and move them forward. And coming from the profession I come from where you know, house is on fire, we, you know put the gear on, get in the truck, go to the fire, put the water on the fire, put the fire out. Honestly, parts of the legislature are not that different from that we just tend to make it way more complicated than it needs to be and there you go I just solved politics in and- <laughs> hey, welcome have a good one
2: <laughs> I guess it does seem like in politics people are always putting out fires so I guess I, I guess that is a good example uh so I, I'm, I'm curious because I was really excited to talk to you uh about this because uh, folks on the right, at least in Oregon, are funny enough, are always like, ah, the unions are always beating us. Like, it's the unions, it, you know, the, the left has the Koch brothers, and at least the right in the Oregon has unions. But of opposite. course, the opposite, literally. Like, yeah, something yeah. on this podcast that we like to talk about is kind of the national realignment. And we saw this, uh, I think, before 2016, but it's kind of when people started to take notice that a lot of working class union members have been shifting more towards the more towards the GOP away from Democrats. Uh, I think that the leadership of most unions is still very much lined up behind the Democratic Party, but that you have just seen kind of a shift of working class, especially union voters going to the GOP in some states. I don't know if that's happened in Oregon, but I'm just sort of curious since uh, you've been involved in the firefighters union. uh, It seems to be a big part of your identity. Like, like, did you run for office? Did people in your union encourage you to run for office? Like, You know, do they love having you as a member, like kind of like what is the relationship between sort of like unions and then elected officials, maybe we'll just start in the Oregon sense.
1: Oh man, that is a great question and it is complex and nuanced in how I approach it. Um, My union is the International Association of Firefighters. And I don't know, is the noise of chickens in the background distracting? Uh, here's another thing that confuses people. I live in Portland, but I have like a little farm here.
0: That's like straight out of Portlandia. She's got chickens balking in the background while recording a podcast.
1: They do have names. <laughs> they do have names. It's Beyonce who tends to be the loudest. But... Um, so, you know, the firefighters union is unique in that it is not, it is not, um, it's very balanced right there are really conservative members there are really progressive or liberal members the leadership tends to be more progressive but not in the way that i am and i am for certain on the leading edge of that within my union especially socially and i spent years as the equity and inclusion chair so bringing up like hey we need to embrace um, our LGBTQIA members. We need to make this a safe space for people to come out. We are 3% women in this profession right now. How do we grow that? Now we're over 7%, we're reaching towards 10%. So I've been a little bit of a gadfly, but I've also, you know, I'm not just coming to them with problems, I'm also bringing in solutions and I'm able to do the work and get the work done.
2: Yeah, and it's really interesting you've been involved uh, I don't know if I'd call those issues politically, but at least like you've you've clearly been involved in the union. It's not like you're just a dues member and you know, famously like Rick Perry when he was running for president, right? He'd always pull out his union card. It's like, well, Rick Perry probably isn't too involved in the <laughs> union, but at least you know, he he is a member and uh, you know, you're seem to be clearly involved. I'm curious, have you sort of seen the shift in your union, for example, uh, since you've been a part of it more towards people becoming more conservative or more Republican or sort of becoming You know, kind of like we're seeing on the national level, right? Or like,
0: maybe not even conservative, but maybe like Trump aligned. Like, did Trump awaken the union?
1: Oh, um, it divided the union. Uh, And not just our union, but I think uh, especially, and I can't speak for other IFF memberships, but I know that... Where in the past, you would have folks from every you know, every time we came up on the purse chopping block, you'd have folks that were diehard conservatives in their yellow IEFF shirts down at the Capitol on the steps saying, hey, I have earned that retirement, blood, sweat and tears, cancer for a lot of us, don't touch that. Um, that still did remain true through the Trump administration. We still had folks who were diehard Trumpers who were like, don't touch my retirement. And that's another, you know, we can circle back to why I think that happens. But there certainly is a a lane where folks who have been conservative, um, who aligned with Trump, I think felt marginalized. And then here comes someone like me. So I, the union did not pick me to run for office. I don't think a union that is um, has a certain identity, you know, the strapping white male firefighter with a big handlebar mustache. That's a lot of the guys I work with, and they're awesome and they're wonderful. And here comes the loudmouth, like born in New York, half Jewish, bisexual, like stepmom. <laughs> here, here I come saying, Hey, I'm gonna run for office and I want your support. Um, the union, I think the union that I work with, I have a really wonderful leadership, and they were like, well. You might not have been the one that we picked to be the face, but we know you're gonna do the work. Um, we know you bring bona fides to this uh, and and you understand what it is that is important to firefighters. And so with all those other, you know, do I think they're like, yay, we're so excited. She's gonna go out and talk about Black Lives Matter. I can tell you from experience, that is definitely not the case, but I have never um, wavered from who I am. And that's something that the union knows about me as well. It's not like I'm going to tell them one thing and do another. What you see is what you get. I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve and I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight like hell for all of us.
0: So following up on that, um, you, so one of our previous episodes, a couple episodes ago, uh, ago, Nate Hawkman. it was actually our best listened to episode. We had several hundred downloads. We were very excited about this. But at the end of the episode, he, (laughs) (laughs) at the end of the episode, he, um, he made a sort of allegation about corruption from labor unions and his, his, his position was basically like candidates. And he was, he was incorrect about like, he was blaming the governor prioritizing teachers on, he thought it was a legislative decision, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of context there, but his basic point was democratic legislators in Oregon receive a ton of money from labor unions. I know you received money from labor unions. When I ran, I received money from labor unions. I don't see uh, I, I have my own response to the corruption critique, um, but I think it's it's worth exploring, right? He says, labor unions give you a lot of money, therefore you're beholden to labor unions and you're just gonna vote the way they want you to. What's your response as <laughs> someone who's received those dollars and maybe not always been on the right side of what your unions would want you to vote on?
1: So I'll be very transparent about this. I love being a labor union candidate and I it always astounds me when working class people, when grassroots folks, when farmers and folks from rural environments are like, labor unions are ruining the state. You know, in the case of the firefighters, here you have several thousand people that are, you know, a lot of, lot of guys that come from that rural environment and they are making their donations to a pack five and $10 at a time. And there were, and, and I'm, you know, my union has to live with this. They know that this happened. There were folks who, when the union backed me said, I will not back her with my PAC dollars. And they stopped contributing to the PAC for the union. That's a very dangerous thing. And it put them in a rough spot um, because they want to keep their membership united. And at the same time, they want a candidate that's going to go out there and be at the leading edge and push for things. So I, you know, they've embraced that to the best of their ability and i i've received lots of union donations some of the donations i'm proudest of are those that come from some of the largest unions so you look at a union like seiu where you have uh caregivers and folks that work in elder care homes and they're donating literally five and ten dollars at a time and being able to meet with those folks through the endorsement process and um, with translators and realize that you're making this difference for working people that's where, you know, when the union rhetoric blows up, I'm kind of like, hold on a second. Let's really, when we equate unions with corporations, we are completely diminishing the contribution of real, contributions of real people.
0: Yeah. So I want to, I want to ask Alex about this a little bit too, because that, that is my response, which is basically you've got, you know, SEIU workers are not making a lot of money. Most like they're, no. they're, they're, them making a small contribution to the PAC is like very impactful and like a huge you know it's a much bigger deal and it's why I think there's a false equivalence between like oh you've got labor unions on one side you've got corporations on the other and those and it's like no that's actually not right on one side you've got a lot of people pitching in to support candidates advancing their their interests on the other side you've got one person or people in a boardroom making decisions about what's best for their company Alex, defend yourself. <laughs> what's, why am I wrong? What's the perspective of like, of, what's the right-wing perspective on organized labor and in politics?
2: I, I was supposed to have the question, Ben. <laughs> uh, no, I would say, I, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting about unions in Oregon in particular is that uh, the, I think that, well, part of the reason that unions, of course, have a lot of power is one, they can organize people. Is there any right-wing apparatus across the entire state of Oregon that can organize people? Uh, I would probably say no. Uh, tim- I mean, they're starting.
0: So yeah, Timber Unity would be the the initial. Get, yeah, and fingers crossed, you know, Timber keeps
2: getting <laughs> bigger. But I I think Timber is pretty small potatoes in terms of organizing and funds and budgets compared to you know big groups like SEIU or the firefighters, etc. So I would say that that's kind of one thing, right? If you can just get a lot of people to do something, like that is a powerful being in itself, right? But that's
0: democracy, right? Like if if, the, if, the, if, the, if 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 there's a group of people on the right who like Timber Unity, who think we're going the wrong direction and can band together their resources, they should do that. But like my my issue is like, don't say that labor union shouldn't be able to participate in, you know, campaigns and elections, like just organize on your own side and raise the money and and, you know, fight back.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I, I don't think anyone necessarily saying they shouldn't be able to participate. I think, oh, that the, yes, the bigger they... critique on the right is more about the public sector unions in terms of employees contributing and then most of those contributions going, let's say 90% of them for some are probably going to Democrats, maybe 10% are going to Republicans. And I was just going to uh,
1: clarify, Alex, like, I love that you called the firefighters a big union. We're actually one of the smaller unions in the state. But, um, we, we have a big presence and uh, the IAFF nationally, this last cycle, I think it was almost 50% gave to Republican candidates. So they, my wow. God, had Tucker Carlson is a speaker, which I was very angry about <laughs> at an IAFF convention several years ago. So I think the IFF does a pretty, I mean, they are not just the lefty union.
2: Yeah, no, well, and that was the the point I was gonna bring up too, is that I think, I think the kind of the lumping in all the unions together as the conservative boogeyman uh, actually probably turns off a lot of the union members who I would say, are maybe a little bit to the center left on fiscal issues, but are probably pretty far to the right on some of the social issues, right? Like, literally, I think of probably some of the working class people that are like, I don't like abortion. Like, you know, I don't really like this woke stuff. But like, oh, I could be I could be okay for raising taxes on the wealthy, like, that's fine. But then by just kind of lumping all union members in together, they turn off a lot of those different folks. So I think we'd have to be successful reaching out to I mean, like one of the unions you see across the country, the GOP has become a lot more successful with recently is police unions, right? Uh, especially with some of the things with, <laughs> yeah, with, you know, defund the police, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I actually think that if the Oregon GOP tried harder or maybe even put in some sort of effort to reach out to some of these unions, uh, maybe they don't peel off some of the traditional players from the left, but they could start peeling off some of the actual members, I think, and maybe that would start changing some things internally. And, Representative, that was actually something I wanted to ask you is uh and maybe not to give too much advice here to the other side but like (laughs) like what do you think republic like democrats are traditionally seen as union or uh, unions are traditionally seen as democratic vehicles again as we just kind of talked about i think that's right in some ways i think it's very wrong with other i mean some of these other unions give like 80 percent only to republicans 20 percent to democrats across the country but like what would you tell the gop to do better at of like unions aren't going away in oregon they're going to keep being powerful entities they're probably going to keep fundraising at Decent numbers and they're going to be able to organize people. What should the GOP be doing better to maybe not reach union leadership but to reach union members.
1: Wow well let me uh, let me write the script here. (laughs) (laughs) Right now. you know, I think the thing that we have to come back to is, and and this is the great polarization in politics, is the economic drivers, economic instability, and the wealth gap in this country. That is what unions are trying to address. And so I think the GOP isn't able, the current GOP, I would posit, can't can't come back and make that appeal to unions because you can't have both at the same time, you can't say we support workers, we support working class folks who are making minimum wage when you're not willing to have that conversation about the rising tide lifting all boats when you're saying hey i'm going to work to protect the top not to sound like Bernie, but the top 1%, you know, the top 1%, they're the top 3% without tax cuts. You can't talk out of one side of your mouth and then say, oh, but I really care about you, minimum wage worker, but you need to pay more tax than, say, the corporation that we're standing up for. So I think if the GOP wants to come to the table and have an honest conversation about, about working class Americans and folks that deserve to be lifted in that, I mean... I'm not tied to party. I I think Mm. I have talked to several GOP members in the legislature who I consider friends. Who, after sitting down with them, I'm like, you sound a lot like a Democrat right now, and you know I I I do have favorite Republicans, and they have after I said that once, they were like, can you please not tell anyone that? that.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a really good point. And that's one thing that Donald Trump did really well to appeal to some of those members, right? He said, no more free trade, we're ending these bad trade deals, we're bringing back jobs here. Uh, We're not going to give tax cuts, we're going to crack down on big finance, which of course, they did do the corporate tax cuts. But at least that was what he advocated for. I think in the 2016 campaign, he was the only GOP candidate to say we're not going to cut Social Security. And I, I totally agree with you that if, you're appealing to working class voters and our agenda is to give more bailouts to JP Morgan and Chase Bank, uh, probably not going to resonate well with your average firefighter. So,
1: well, uh, it, <laughs> it's, not, it's not just that, let's be fair too. It's not just the Republicans that do that. The Democrats are also complicit in bailing out big corporations. I'm not afraid to throw darts at both sides. I mean, well, when and, you talk about big politics that way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And for, for on the report, like, I was texting with a different elected official who was listening to the Mayor Stan Pulliam episode we just did, who is basically like the, the, the person said, like, the Republicans haven't learned the lesson of Trump. Like Trump has made things worse for the Republican Party, because the answer for Republicans in Oregon is probably like 2016 campaign Trump. That was like more populist, and like you got to—he definitely cool it on the racism and the like homophobia and you know sexism. But like the the under the populism of like yeah we're we're gonna raise taxes on wealthy people and corporations are bad and like there's something there. But then he got elected and did the opposite of what he campaigned on. And so if you're a Republican in Oregon, how do you learn? There's no how do you learn a lesson from that? Um, when he's still deeply popular with the base. And then the other thing I was going to say on that before we transition is PERS. Republicans in Oregon in particular have used PERS as the boogeyman <laughs> yeah, for like a decade. They've said like the, everything wrong with, we can't fund schools and we can't pay for this because of PERS. PERS. Well, PERS is the most important issue, as Dacia mentioned, to most public employees in their union. Like it's their retirement. It's what they're counting on after they end their their career of public service. And so like, it doesn't matter how populist you are, if your campaign issue is, I'm gonna cut your pension. Like, it's just a non-starter. So that's my, I think like, if the PERS issue is dead, which I'm not hearing people, maybe you are in Salem, like make PERS the boogeyman as much as they did four or six years ago, then like, there might be an opening. But as long as Republicans are saying PERS is the is the reason everything's bad, like it's just not gonna work.
1: You know, there was a really interesting uh, business and labor meeting we had where we were talking about a PERS bill. A purse fix. We did only purse fixes this time that would ensure that someone, you know, we use the firefighters, that if a firefighter had worked to retirement but hadn't actually retired from the line yet due to labor needs, due to you know staffing needs, and they died before retirement, then they their their spouse would only get 50% of their of what they had earned. So this fix says that your family gets your retirement if you die when you've reached that age. It was a good bill, it has a very low fiscal to it. And the Republican caucus and, you know, Rep Bonham is my friend, so I can see this. He's like, you know what, this is a really good bill. I like this, but it's a PERS bill, so I'm gonna vote no. And and I mean, and that's what they did and they voted no. They're like, we just on principle won't vote yes on a PERS bill. And so, you know, PERS is the third rail of business and labor in a lot of ways. And I think that we do need to have real conversations. Um, Those conversations are going to become less imminent as more tier one and tier two people retire, or actually it's not when they retire, it's when they leave this earth, (laughs) sadly. And I'm married to someone who's tier one, so I, you know, but as we get into more and more Opserve, we're seeing, we're going to see that gap continue to decline.
0: So um transitioning us to uh to social media, one of the things, one of the reasons why we were interested in talking to you is because I think I think of you as one of the sort of elected leaders on use of social media, which you could argue low bar <laughs> in Oregon, not a lot of real uh wizards on social media, but you're you're active on social media. You did the sub 60s in session videos where you're kind of explaining what's going on. And what I think is most interesting is how aggressive you are on social media in calling out Republican, your Republican colleagues, including tagging them in posts, which I always find super hilarious when like elected tags another elected and basically says. so like some of the big ones are. But they're they're um, not even checking Twitter, so they're not. Getting-
1: <laughs> yeah, <that's- laughs> I have, um, you know, he would laugh that I talked about this, but Bill, Bill Post, Rep Post, he knows And I I consider Bill someone I'm super friendly with, but rep post knows the second I tweet on something. And I, you know, we we have this sort of agreement. Well, we where we will circularly call each other out, but we won't like aggressively attack the other person because, you know, and I, I have this big vision, kind of what you guys are doing. I would love to have common ground town halls where, like, say rep post and I held a town hall together but I'm not sure how to do that without it becoming an actual poo show at this point. <laughs> right. because, our, because our constituents are so passionate and our supporters are so passionate, but really there, there is common ground there. There I, I there are very few people that I serve with in the legislature that I don't feel like we can identify over something.
0: Well, so, so this actually gets to my question, which is something I've been thinking about a lot. So Joe Biden during the campaign um got in a ton of trouble when he talked about his working relationship with like famously racist senators right he was like at least back then like we could talk to one we could work together and he got destroyed for that and that's so that's one end of the spectrum on the other end of the spectrum you have people particularly at the national level which is part of why i think like what i'm trying to tease out here is how much of what you're doing is um analogous to what's happening at the national level and how much of it is a different approach. But at the national level, and I think you just kind of indicated that it's different, but at the national level, it's like sport to call out Ted Cruz and Matt Gates and Devin Nunez. And like, there's like Republican boogeymen who, you know, there are Democrats whose entire Public identity is attacking Republicans, which and it's quite profitable for them. They're getting on MSNBC, they're getting op-eds published, like they're, you know, that's who they are. Um, and I would argue, and I think most would argue that like it makes uh bipartisanship or um, you know, forging compromise a lot more challenging. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things Ezra Klein, this brings up, one of the things Ezra Klein just asked Obama on his podcast, if you haven't listened, it's amazing, was basically like, how do you know, because Obama in his book apparently was like, talking about how, you know, he was wondering, like, you know, how racist is the Tea Party? How much of this is about racism? And Ezra Klein was like, they were super racist. (laughs) Like, why are you thinking through that? And how do you decide when you just have to eat the costs of telling the truth and saying this is racism. And yeah, there's going to be a political cost to me saying that. And Obama's response was basically like, yeah, I could call them racist and be right. But I was trying to pass health care for people, which seemed to me more important than making. Um, So I guess all that considered, when you're on social media, and you know, you're calling out Christine Drazen, representative Drazen, or you're calling out um, what I thought was wild, you tweeted about these the Republicans who like decided not to vote, they just skipped the vote on the 13th oh. amendment bill. Um, mm-hmm. How do you balance, like, I wanna work with them. You just talked about wanting to forge common ground. I'm gonna call them out publicly and they're probably not gonna work, wanna work with me if I do that. Like, how do you how do you think about that balance?
1: I think there are Republicans who are never gonna wanna work with me. And I don't know, so I, there is common ground, like I said, with most people there. If you are going to walk out on a vote and they they deliberately did that. One of them had a legitimate medical thing, and and that one well, that one individual I actually have a great working relationship with.
0: Can you describe the bill, by the way? I did a bad job of like what what did they walk out on?
1: Um, it was a bill on a it was a bill that um, Bynum carried on the floor that day, Rep. Bynum, about asking for Congress to investigate reparations and having that conversation. It wasn't a state level thing. It was a congressional resolution. Uh, I gave gave a remonstrance at the end of the day, and I also understand the point that some of the Republicans made. Republicans made that a resolution, a congressional resolution, does nothing. It's It's a virtue signaling exercise, and sure, but. The conversation has to start somewhere. You have to have the intent and say, We are willing to peel back the onion. We are willing to get to the nitty gritty of this. And it's going to make us all uncomfortable. And there's going to be Democrats and Republicans alike that don't agree with it, but we have to have the conversation. And so I think it's, you know, I know I can't swear on air, but it's chicken (laughs) to not own your vote. And that's one of the things, you know, not to pop up Rep Post again, but Rep Post will own his vote. He will. He's, you know, and, and I will own my vote. And I think that having that level of accountability is important. And when we when we fail, if you have something that's so blatantly uh, a dog whistle to racism, it's on everyone. And And there were, if you look at the video of that, there were Republicans who were looking at those empty seats going, like, who were really upset by that. It wasn't just a Democrat thing. They're not gonna speak out against members of their own caucus. And uh, I think that's where my caucus is a little nervous sometimes. I, I didn't ask for permission to tweet that.
0: <laughs> what? what
1: I ask for forgiveness. What,
2: what, have, you, have you gotten any pushback from tweets before?
1: Um, sure, sure. But I also, I think, you know, I had a, a joke the other day with someone in the HMO that I like to do my own stunts. So I I enjoy, I do most of my own, uh, all my Twitter is myself. My team does work on Facebook for kind of educational things. All those 60 second videos. I am, uh, I I almost started doing those as a way to mortify my teenage children because they were so horrified. They're like, this is, oh, and they were begging like whatever you do, don't go on TikTok. And I still haven't done that, but you know, I, I write my own remonstrances, I write my own speeches, it's really important to me that things are in my voice. And that's not everyone's lane. Not everybody is comfortable doing that. And, you know, that's, that's the relationship that I'm developing with the Republicans as well. And I expect to be called out on it. Um, and I will be and they have called me out on certain things. And and they're not wrong. I I think, you know, we as a as a country, have and I don't want to sound like. And now we're going to talk about civics, but <laughs> we have failed to learn how to have these really difficult, uncomfortable conversations. And the very last thing we should do is to run away from them. And so I, I was mortified um, that those folks didn't show up for that vote. And they were called multiple times. And you know, one of them is under investigation, and 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 he is also signaling to his base.
0: For sure,
1: And and I think, you know, if I were a Republican, just like sometimes there are folks in my caucus that signal to their base things that I'm really uncomfortable with. If I were a Republican, I can see why some of them were so nervous about that and so upset about that because it is basically a racist dog whistle to not show up. And furthermore, it's hurtful to the BIPOC folks that are on the floor that this bill is personal to them you know, we're talking about folks whose families were, you know, who who lost family members in genocides, who who came to this nation as, you know, product of slave labor. So I think we owe that, we owe everyone that conversation.
0: Never so mind. We'll hold
2: that thought, because we do want to actually circle back on that specific oh, yeah. bill in, in just a second, but, but focusing back again on social media. So for example, you talked about, sort of civics in general. And uh, there was actually some big news today, which I, you may not even have known this, but so Facebook has recommended to that Donald Trump will not be restored back on their platform for at least two years. Uh, I think there's been other people who have been kicked off Facebook, Twitter, probably some people have been kicked off Instagram. I don't know if anyone's technically been kicked off of TikTok, but, uh, but also, so I, I think that some people say, you know, Oh, that that you know, this is great. We should kick off the the President Trumps. We should kick off the far left. We need more sort of civics, I'd say, behind our social media. Whereas I think other people say, and more where I'm at, I think it's ridiculous that the former president of the United States isn't allowed to make a, a post on Facebook or on Twitter. And I would say that some of the lefties too have been who have been kicked off. who I actually think have been a number of sort of be you know, kind of in the BLM. Light, maybe it's more towards the kind of radical side of that, but by no means advocating violence have also been kicked off. I think that that's also ridiculous. So I'm curious from your question, or, you know, from your perspective, because we have talked about big tech on this podcast quite a bit, is yeah. where did, you know, from your perspective, where do you see that line? Uh, like, do you think that social media companies should be kicking people off the platform and trying to make things more civic through that way? Do you think that free speech should sort of override that? Like, I'm just kind of curious from your perspective on that issue.
1: You know, when did truth become subjective that's really that's really to me the biggest lane that we're stuck in here and trump did something that no one had ever done and, and he came out early on with this whole concept of fake news and literally created an alternate reality if you go through some of his speeches that were fact checked and fact checked and and to be fair i don't think there's a politician out there who's ever delivered a full length speech who hasn't diverged or use those facts or used statistics to back their point but in trump's case i mean objectively speaking there were so many blatant lies and to me that's when when you are when you are the most powerful person in the free world and you are creating a narrative that is false that is not based on truth that is that is calling out you know that is riling people up that is saying you need to you need to you know, stand, Proud Boys, stand, whatever it was.
0: Stand down, I, stand by, or whatever.
1: Yeah, know. stand, stand by, stand down. I can't remember, what I was horrified. I mean, and that was Trump's whole brand. And so, you you know, Alex, your point about First Amendment rights, absolutely. And that's one I, you know, I'm not going to be able to give you an answer that's going to make anyone happy. It's one I struggle with all the time, personally. Uh, when I started making those 60 second videos, I was like, I'm gonna make these completely you know, non-partisan. And then I started veering into partisan territory. I absolutely did early on when you know, Leader Drazen gave her really remarkable speech about not letting her communities be harmed by the evil Democrats. <laughs> uh, when that happens, I feel as a Democrat, it's important to push back. Um, so there are folks that I think we can all agree are unhealthy to social media. When you have folks that are saying, you know, I mean, I, and I don't presume to know your viewpoints Alex, but I think we can all the three of us agree that the the coronavirus vaccine does not in fact contain a 5G chip.
0: Well, I I'm kidding.
2: I got it there's 5G in me. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean so I so I
1: understand that like, because my reception is terrible here, but um, <laughs> that whole, you know, and, and people bought that hook, line and sinker, you know, I, I go, <laughs> I lurk, I look on some of these ultra right-wing websites to see what they're saying. I mean, it, it's important to know what's being said about you and your party and what that messaging is. And when it's, they're injecting, you know, Chinese microchips that will cause, you know, that will cause people in proximity to be, to be infertile and 3000 people like that post, that's that's not factually correct. I would say the same thing if a Democrat was saying, "Hey, get this coronavirus vaccine or get this other vaccine." There is, you know, we know everything about it, and there's no side effects. That's not true either. That's not true either. So we have to be bold, and we have to demand the truth out of folks.
0: Yeah, um, and for for me, I agree with all of that. And I I think what it comes down to, and we kind of had this conversation with Alex Carlatos. It's like. If you think that the January sixth insurrection was an accident and that Trump had nothing to do with it, I can understand why you'd be outraged that he's being removed. Like, cause I don't think lying on social media. I don't know. I I I tend to think that the free speech interests like lie is uh you know like the Washington Post has a Pinocchio meter. There's a pants on fire lie. There's a three three Pinocchio lie. Like Like it's not black and white or as black and white as we would like it to be, but. Playing a role in what happened on January sixth, there have to be consequences. There, there just have to be.
1: Can we talk about white supremacy extremism and why why that? I mean, Alex, I don't know if you know this. That's my background. My academic background is in homeland security and emergency management, and my my capstone was in white supremacy white supremacy extremism and why we are having this resurgence in this moment and um, Trump's very effective rhetoric played to people's base fears and when people are, are fearful when people don't feel confident in in the state of where things are at when they don't know that they're going to have a roof over their head and be able to send their kids to good schools and feed their families they go to where they feel safe and and so much of the roots of that like Uh, of the modern, if you will, white supremacy movement came from folks who came back from Vietnam who weren't welcomed here, who were ostracized. And it was certain white supremacy groups. There's this fabulous book called Bring the War Home that it is a nonpartisan book but it is absolutely worth the read by Kathleen Ballou, I think it is. And she talks about how you created these cultural identities because people felt seen and they felt safe and they felt like, and that's ultimately what we all want. And so when we look at eradicating the, the roots of white supremacy and we look at eradicating or not eradicating, but addressing some of the heavy rhetoric that led to the sixth, we have to, we have to look at that and I'll stop rambling. No, I, no, no. As we ask the question, like, hey, <laughs> let's talk about white supremacy. No, no, no.
0: We I, Conversational is good, but I think it does lead into Alex, what you were interested in following up on the previous yeah. legislation we talked about.
2: Yeah, so, so I'm curious, and you, you said a little bit about it, but uh, we did want to talk a little bit about re, uh, reparations, because uh, I know this is an issue that, uh, well, I actually didn't even know was gaining traction in Oregon, but it's gained a ton of traction on the national stage. And I believe also that the city in Chicago, I forgot where it is, but it has a Northwestern University, they actually just implemented uh, reparations on the city level. And I believe that every... I think it's either every African-American in the city or every African-American they can link to slavery gets like a $25,000 check or something like that. Uh, So I'm curious, you said the bill was a resolution, but uh, I'm curious of your thoughts on the issue. One, what do you think the general solution is? What does it look like? Uh, Because clearly this is an issue that's gaining a lot of steam. Uh, And I know that actually a lot of progressives have been pretty upset with President Biden too, because they think that his rhetoric from the campaign has changed dramatically in terms of what he's actually been willing to push forward and put support behind in Congress. So I'm curious from your perspective of one, maybe let's dive a little bit more into the resolution itself. And then kind of what do you think that that, uh, what do you think the bill kind of looks like if someone was actually to be put forward?
1: So you're asking me about something which until that day, I have had a zero interaction with I'm, I'm not even a co-sponsor of that resolution. That was so out, outside of what I'm doing, but I can, you know, here's my like hot take on it. I don't know at this point what it looks like, what it means to have meaningful reparations. And I don't know that as a society, we have we have reached a point where we're ready to talk about that. But I think we need to put the flag there and we need to have the conversation. And then in the meantime, we need to do all the work to make sure that the wrongs of the past are undone. So for me, you know, my caution, the reason I didn't sign on is where do we define the line? You know, are we not paying reparations then to Native Americans, to the genocide of Native Americans and the displacement of Native Americans who you know, and and what about to immigrants and refugees who were marginalized, who had family members die? So that's, that's to me, like, how do we all encompass, but I think um, slavery and slave labor in this country, that was, this country was built on that, and and we do. It's not, you know, I've heard, one of the things that brought me to writing the Remonstrance I did on that day was one of the members talked about his family ties and how, but that was in the past and that's over. And I think that's easy as white people to say when we haven't had the generational trauma. And there is there is scientific evidence between generational trauma that manifests physically in people. But, you know, I have the advantage and my, my folks, I was born you know, I was born in New York. And then the first house we actually lived in the first real house was a single wide trailer. I did not grow up wealthy. And so folks are like, well, then why don't you deserve reparations as well? I had I never had anyone judging me by the color of my skin. I never I didn't have years of not even years, generations of that bias and, and overcoming that, and I think that we do have to address that. And to, until we're willing to have that conversation, and I know this makes me sound you're like, oh my gosh, here she goes, ultra lefty again. We have to address that. It's the unspoken thing. Um, we dance around it as a topic again. We need to we need to come to the table on that. Do I think that we're going to reach a national consensus on it? We're not. We're not there. But I think that we need to have the
0: conversation do you think quick follow up and then I, I we there's one, one more topic we want to cover um do you think there's an appetite to do something or try something in oregon i haven't heard of the the city thing titus that you mentioned but that's interesting to me it seems to me to be more of a national issue given the institution of slavery and the what on the left we would call systemic racism has really been permeated across national systems and institutions. But in absence of federal action, states are continuing to kind of do what they think is right. So do you think there's an appetite to, you know, examine what state level reparations might look like in Oregon? Or are we also not there?
1: I would, I think the appetite is there. I would hope so. I think Oregon also is um, unique and not in a good way. Oh, Sorry, my dog's dreaming. <laughs> it's her dreams. Um, <laughs> we have, uh, you know, Oregon was founded in the Grand Bargain as as a as a slave state. Essentially, we were a Western slave state. We had sundown our laws. You know, we are. <laughs> we need to examine that history. That's something I didn't grow up in Oregon. I grew up in New York, but even in New York, I remember learning a little bit about Oregon and some of that. When I moved here. And it's no longer a thing where people are like, oh, Oregon is completely white. It's not anymore. The demographics are Oregon are changing, and I think we actually whitewash the actual racial composition of the state when we say things like that, but we need to really examine the racist history and so how it still perpetuates right now. I mean, we have modern, we have redlining, we have school segregation, whether, and, and yeah. That's another whole podcast, isn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> we will we will have you back for the follow up.
1: To me about the thing that I actually know the least about.
0: <laughs> Thank you. No, uh- well, I don't think you know the least about it. I think like your your, uh, your your remonstrance on the topic actually was getting some social media traffic too. I saw the house Dems kind of blasted that out too. So I think you're, you're speaking to something that other people feel as well, even though I don't think anyone really has a strong, here's what the reparations policy needs to look like, but there is a feeling of like, there is some unresolved harm that has happened. And, you know, maybe we don't have the structures or the systems to figure out how to do that, but not talk, talking about it seems wrong.
1: Mm-hmm. And I that also, I will admit, there's somewhat of a knee-jerk reaction I have whenever, and Alex, I, I feel like I'm picking on you, but I'm not. Um, and the Republicans, like every, Republicans love Martin Luther King quotes, and they love like super benign, it's not the color of your skin, it's the content of your character. Martin Luther King was a radical and a revolutionary and a socialist. I mean, he was a flawed human as well, but he really, when we, when we, diminish people to the parts that we kind of sanitize, we're completely losing the message. And that was part of what I wanted to point out. And then one of the Republican legislators talked to me after, and he said, I didn't know that. I didn't know that.
0: Free education brought to you by Representative Graber. Um, so I'm gonna make a, 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 a rapid transition here because we've got a few minutes left.
1: Yes, yeah, sorry. The thing, the,
0: the, <laughs> the, 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 the short-term public policy in, uh, issue that Is most scary to me, and I'm not exaggerating at all. Is wildfires, Um, like I'm, I'm, I've already said, like I can't do another summer of the smoke, like we had last time, where, like, I just, I uh, just bought my first house. It's a fixer upper. The windows are terrible. Like I'm just gonna be breathing in smoke, like a lot of other people, if we're in a similar situation. Obviously, and and that is nothing compared to people losing their houses and dying, et cetera. Uh, And from everything I've read. This is, the conditions are worse this year than they were last year in a bigger geographic area than last year. So can you make me feel better about what the, has the legislature done anything this year to prepare us better for that? Is there any, and importantly, on the scale necessary to actually matter when we're talking about a state like Oregon, or are you bracing yourself as a firefighter for a really ugly um, summer?
1: To make a meaningful difference in what we are going to experience this summer, we would have to use the way back machine to five years ago, but I can tell you that we are um, The most work that I've been done is that I've done has been around this conversation and resilience and mitigation and prevention and how do we bring an effective um, approach to something that's not just wildfire, but really all hazards, when we're talking about structures that res- that are used for response in the state. And, and I mean, logging and, and forest management is an entire, again, another hour, um, really <laughs> something worth discussing. Can't do it
2: in 30 seconds?
1: <laughs> I think the biggest fear, I mean, we're all having these these conversations about old growth and what forest and, and you know, what forest management looks like we are failing to correct the blowdown situation that we had and and right now what's happening is we had a really wet late winter and then we've had all this heat so what you have are mm-hmm. what we call ladder fuels that are just exploding so blackberries and brush and gorse and all these other flashy fuels that are just like ooh this is the best condition ever we're growing up in that we have all this blowdown we are we have the conditions of a powder keg so i cannot offer you um what I can offer you for this summer is to have really clear conversations about preparation, about what evacuation levels are, what that looks like. And these are things we should be having as a state anyway. Um, Ben knows I I could get on my soapbox about this, but we are the only place in the world in, in modern history that has never lived through their greatest disaster potential. And that is, that's the Cascadia earthquake. I mean, none of us, none of, You know, in the last 200 years, we don't have that generational like, oh, the big one's going to come. And this is what it feels like when our city is destroyed, like they do even down in California. And and we know that is coming. That is fact. The wildfires are another thing altogether. Um, Again, we could hit on climate change, but that is coming back this summer. And I would say if we avoid those kind of smoke conditions that we had and fires like we had, it will be a miracle. So I'm sorry to say that
0: I no, I appreciate the honesty and that's, um, I think, important for people to know now in June, um, because it's coming. I guess my my follow up question is I like the beginning of your answer about we'd need the, the five years back way back machine, um, because it, it sort of alludes to the fact that like public policy in this area can't be done like, you know, okay. a couple months in advance. Is this the new normal like is this should should Oregonians just be ready for their summers being smoke filled and being ready to evacuate their homes, depending on where they live, or can we actually meaningfully, you know what can we do stuff now that in five years is going to pay dividends and are we doing those things.
1: Yes, and we are going to start doing those things. So the Senate bill right now that deals with wildfire 762. And one of the really important components of that is it adopts the International Wildland Urban Interface Code. And that's a fire code that talks about something as simple as managing brush around your property, having clear space. uh, and, And it identifies through a very systemic mapping program, like what is high risk, what is low risk. And it's It is basically pre-planning what the worst conditions can look like, and that allows for fire agencies, for emergency management to look at this and say, okay, this is the possibility of what's coming, this is how we can approach this. I think that, um, I'll, I'll throw this barb in. We have had many administrations here in Oregon, and yes, most of them democratic that love to pay lip service to resilience and emergency management, but they don't love to put money behind it. Right. And ultimately we have to fund these initiatives. We have, you know, as a, as a state firefighting force, just from the, the labor perspective, from when they look at calculations and in, in a similar fire load and similar population load, we are a thousand firefighters short in this state for an immediate- Holy
0: cow. A Wow.
1: A thousand firefighters in a state. Uh, We have, you know, um, we have right now our Oregon State Fire Marshal, who does an incredible job. They are sharing an agency with Oregon State Police, Oregon State Patrol. So, one of the things that another bill 2927 does is looks to separate that into an independent agency that makes them more flexible, more nimble. They're not dependent on that budget. They are no longer, they're no longer like nesting Russian dolls anymore. We have to, you know, we are living in this time where we actually have to address this. And I would say, and this is where I run into some things with social justice. People are like, we have to put money towards this initiative or this initiative. And I'd say that, um, I was hoping the wildfires would do this lesson because give us this lesson. But when you have an emergency folks who are the most vulnerable are affected the most urgently. I mean, there, there are, we can look at the racism behind emergency response, even again, another big thing, but we have to start addressing this or we're going to be playing catch up. And if we don't, I, I mean, another example, Dogami, the, the, uh, very wonky science group. They they do LIDAR mapping. People are like, why do they matter? Well, they matter because they work on the inundation zone. They can tell you what areas are prone to liquefaction and, and how we should be approaching, you know, resilience with our buildings. The governor cut the two positions of dogami. She reinstated she reinstated the funding after a big social push, but she cut the two earthquake resilience positions. I mean, right. so.
0: And that's uh, Dogami is the Department of Geology and Mineral Industries, like, you know, little known agency, but like super critical for (laughs) for resilience. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So sorry, I got on my resilience. So (laughs) I could talk all day about this. It is so important. And resilience applies not just to fire and earthquakes. It applies to our schools, to our social structures, to our healthcare system it's the word that I feel like if in my perfect world, every politician would have that as, as a guiding principle. Well, well thank up. you
2: for that, uh, Rep. Graybar. And we'll definitely have to have you back to talk about, I've <laughs> we'll have to have to have to talking about resilience. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, but before you, uh, before you go, uh, where can people find you? Where can they follow you on social media? Where can they ca- keep up with the work that you're doing? Uh, this, if you know your own website domain that's always great too some people just boom right off the top of their head <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or your twitter handle and things uh-oh. like that um,
1: so. yeah no i'm uh dacia for oregon on facebook uh we do have a website dacia for Oregon.com. i haven't updated it during session we have our legislative website which we're a little behind on updating as well let but i'm not alone in that and then twitter i'm at dj graber g-r-a-y-b-e-r and I try to have um, at least bi-monthly town halls, and those are, op- those are open to everyone, not just folks in the area, especially while they're remote.
2: Oh, great. That's good to know as well. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you again so much for joining, and everybody, thanks for listening. And uh, please remember to hit the subscribe button and give five stars, and we'll see you at the next one. Thanks,
0: right. everyone.
1: Thank you so much.